Book Five, Preface, and Chapters One through Twelve of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by Saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Five, Preface. Since then it is established that the complete attainment of all we desire is that which constitutes felicity, which is no goddess, but a gift of God, and that therefore men can worship no god save him who is able to make them happy, and were felicity herself a goddess, she would with reason be the only object of worship. Since, I say, this is established, let us now go on to consider why God, who is able to give with all other things those good gifts which can be possessed by men who are not good, and consequently not happy, has seen fit to grant such extended and long-continued dominion to the Roman Empire. For that this was not effected by that multitude of false gods which they worshipped, we have both already adduced, and shall, as occasion offers, yet adduce considerable proof. CHAPTER One. The cause, then, of the greatness of the Roman Empire is neither fortuitous nor fatal, according to the judgment or opinion of those who call those things fortuitous, which either have no causes, or such causes do not proceed from some intelligible order, and those things fatal which happen independently of the will of God and man, by the necessity of a certain order. In a word, human kingdoms are established by divine providence. And if any one attributes their existence to fate, because he calls the will or the power of God itself by the name of fate, let him keep his opinion, but correct his language. For why does he not say at first what he will say afterwards, when some one shall put the question to him what he means by fate? For when men hear that word, according to the ordinary use of the language, they simply understand by it the virtue of that particular position of the stars which may exist at the time when any one is born or conceived, which some separate altogether from the will of God, whilst others affirm that this also is dependent on that will. But those who are of opinion that apart from the will of God the stars determine what we shall do, or what good things we shall possess, or what evils we shall suffer, must be refused a hearing by all, not only by those who hold the true religion, but by those who wish to be the worshippers of any gods whatsoever, even false gods. For what does this opinion really amount to but this, that no god whatever is to be worshipped or prayed to? Against these, however, our present disputation is not intended to be directed, but against those who, in defense of those whom they think to be gods, oppose the Christian religion. They, however, who make the position of the stars depend on the divine will, and in a manner decree what character each man shall have, and what good or evil shall happen to him, if they think that these same stars have that power conferred upon them by the supreme power of God, in order that they may determine these things according to their will, do a great injury to the celestial sphere, in whose most brilliant senate, and most splendid senate-house, as it were, they suppose that wicked deeds are decreed to be done. Such deeds as that, if any terrestrial state should decree them, it would be condemned to overthrow by the decree of the whole human race. What judgment, then, is left to God concerning the deeds of men, who is lord both of the stars and of men, when to these deeds a celestial necessity is attributed? Or if they do not say that the stars, though they have indeed received a certain power from God, who is supreme, determine those things according to their own discretion, but simply that his commands are fulfilled by them instrumentally in the application and enforcing of such necessities, are we thus to think concerning God even what it seemed unworthy that we should think concerning the will of the stars? 
but if the stars are said rather to signify these things than to affect them so that that position of the stars is as it were a kind of speech predicting not causing future things for this has been the opinion of men of no ordinary learning certainly the mathematicians are not wont so to speak saying for example mars in such or such a position signifies a homicide but makes a homicide but nevertheless though we grant that they do not speak as they ought and that we ought to accept as the proper form of speech that employed by the philosophers in predicting those things which they think they discover in the position of the stars how comes it that they have never been able to assign any cause why in the life of twins in their actions in the events which befall them in their professions arts honours and other things pertaining to human life also in their very death there is often so great a difference that as far as these things are concerned many entire strangers are more like them than they are like each other though separated at birth by the smallest interval of time but at conception generated by the same act of copulation and at the same moment chapter two cicero says that the famous physician hippocrates has left in writing that he had suspected that a certain pair of brothers were twins from the fact that they both took ill at once and their disease advanced to its crisis and subsided in the same time in each of them Posidonius the Stoic, who was much given to astrology, used to explain the fact by supposing that they had been born and conceived under the same constellation. In this question the conjecture of the physician is by far more worthy to be accepted, and approaches much nearer to credibility, since, according as the parents were affected in body at the time of copulation, so might the first elements of the fetuses have been affected, so that all that was necessary for their growth and development up till birth having been supplied from the body of the same mother, they might be born with like constitutions. Thereafter, nourished in the same house, on the same kinds of food, where they would have also the same kinds of air, the same locality, the same quality of water, which, according to the testimony of medical science, have a very great influence, good or bad, on the condition of bodily health, and where they would also be accustomed to the same kinds of exercise, they would have bodily constitutions so similar that they would be similarly affected with sickness at the same time, and by the same causes but to wish to adduce that particular position of the stars which existed at the time when they were born or conceived as the cause of their being simultaneously affected with sickness manifests the greatest arrogance when so many beings of most diverse kinds in the most diverse conditions and subject to the most diverse events may have been conceived and born at the same time and in the same district lying under the same sky but we know that twins do not only act differently and travel to very different places but that they also suffer from different kinds of sickness for which hippocrates would give what is in my opinion the simplest reason namely that through diversity of food and exercise which arises not from the constitution of the body but from the inclination of the mind they may have come to be different from each other in respect of health moreover posidonius or any other asserter of the fatal influence of the stars will have enough to do to find anything to say to this if he be unwilling to impose upon the minds of the uninstructed in things of which they are ignorant but as to what they attempt to make out from that very small interval of time elapsing between the births of twins on account of that point in the heavens where the mark of the natal hour is placed in which they call the horoscope it is either disproportionately small to the diversity which is found in the dispositions actions habits and fortunes of twins or it is disproportionately great when compared with the estate of twins whether low or high which is the same for both of them the cause for whose greatest difference they place in every case in the hour on which one is born 
and for this reason, if the one is born so immediately after the other that there is no change in the horoscope, I demand an entire similarity in all that respects them both, which can never be found in the case of any twins. But if the slowness of the birth of the second give time for a change in the horoscope, I demand different parents which twins can never have. CHAPTER Three. It is to no purpose, therefore, that that famous fiction about the potter's wheel is brought forward, which tells of the answer which Nigidius is said to have given when he was perplexed with this question, and on account of which he was called Figulus. For having whirled round the potter's wheel with all his strength, he marked it with ink, striking it twice with the utmost rapidity, so that the stroke seemed to fall in the very same part of it. Then, when the rotation had ceased, the marks which he had made were found upon the rim of the wheel at no small distance apart. Thus, said he, considering the great rapidity with which the celestial sphere revolves, even though twins were born with as short an interval between their births as there was between the strokes which I gave this wheel, that brief interval of time is equivalent to a very great distance in the celestial sphere. Hence, said he, come whatever dissimilitudes may be remarked in the habits and fortunes of twins. This argument is more fragile than the vessels which are fashioned by the rotation of that wheel. For if there is so much significance in the heavens which cannot be comprehended by observation of the constellations, that in the case of twins an inheritance may fall to the one and not to the other, why, in the case of others who are not twins, do they dare, having examined their constellations, to declare such things as pertain to that secret which no one can comprehend, and to attribute them to the precise moment of the birth of each individual? Now if such predictions in connection with the natal hours of others who are not twins are to be vindicated, on the ground that they are founded on the observation of more extended spaces in the heavens, whilst those very small moments of time which separated the births of twins, and correspond to minute portions of celestial space, are to be connected with trifling things about which the mathematicians are not wont to be consulted, for who would consult them as to when he is to sit, when to walk abroad, when and on what he is to dine? How can we be justified in so speaking, when we can point out such manifold diversity both in the habits, doings, and destinies of twins? Chapter 4 In the time of the ancient fathers, to speak concerning illustrious persons, there were born two twin brothers, the one so immediately after the other, that the first took hold of the heel of the second. So great a difference existed in their lives and manners, so great a dissimilarity in their actions, so great a difference in their parents' love for them respectively, that the very contrast between them produced even a mutual hostile antipathy. Do we mean, when we say that they were so unlike each other, that when the one was walking the other was sitting, when the one was sleeping the other was waking, which differences are such as are attributed to those minute portions of space which cannot be appreciated by those who note down the position of the stars which exists at the moment of one's birth, in order that the mathematicians may be consulted concerning it? One of these twins was for a long time a hired servant, the other never served. One of them was beloved by his mother, the other was not so. One of them lost that honor which was so much valued among their people, the other obtained it. And what shall we say of their wives, their children, and their possessions? How different they were in respect to all these! If, therefore, such things as these are connected with those minute intervals of time which elapse between the births of twins, and are not to be attributed to the constellations, wherefore are they predicted in the case of others from the examination of their constellations? And if, on the other hand, these things are said to be predicted because they are connected not with minute and inappreciable moments, but with intervals of time which can be observed and noted down, what purpose is that potter's wheel to serve in this matter, except it be to whirl round men who have hearts of clay, in order that they may be prevented from detecting the emptiness of the talk of the mathematicians. 
Chapter 5 Do not those very persons whom the medical sagacity of Hippocrates led him to suspect to be twins, because their disease was observed by him to develop to its crisis, and to subside again in the same time in each of them, do not these, I say, serve as a sufficient refutation of those who wish to attribute to the influence of the stars that which was owing to a similarity of bodily constitution? For wherefore were they both sick of the same disease, and at the same time, and not the one after the other in the order of their birth? For certainly they could not both be born at the same time. Or if the fact of their having been born at different times by no means necessarily implies that they must be sick at different times, why do they contend that the difference in the time of their births was the cause of their difference in other things? Why could they travel in foreign parts at different times, marry at different times, beget children at different times, and do many other things at different times, by reason of their having been born at different times, and yet could not, for the same reason, also be sick at different times? For if a difference in the moment of birth changed the horoscope, and occasioned dissimilarity in all other things, why has that simultaneousness which belonged to their conception remained in their attacks of sickness? Or if the destinies of health are involved in the time of conception, but those of other things be said to be attached to the time of birth, they ought not to predict anything concerning health from an examination of the constellations of birth, when the hour of conception is not also given, that its constellations may be inspected. But if they say that they predict attacks of sickness without examining the horoscope of conception, because these are indicated by the moments of birth, how could they inform either of these twins when he would be sick from the horoscope of his birth, when the other also, who had not the same horoscope of birth, must of necessity fall sick at the same time? Again, I ask, if the distance of time between the births of twins is so great as to occasion a difference of their constellations on account of the difference of their horoscopes, and therefore of all the cardinal points to which so much influence is attributed, that even from such change there comes a difference of destiny, how is it possible that this should be so, since they cannot have been conceived at different times? Or, if two conceived at the same moment of time could have different destinies with respect to their births, why might not also two born at the same moment of time have different destinies for life and for death? For if the one moment in which both were conceived did not hinder that the one should be born before the other, why, if two were born at the same moment, should anything hinder them from dying at the same moment? If a simultaneous conception allows of twins being differently affected in the womb, why should not simultaneousness of birth allow of any two individuals having different fortunes in the world? And thus would all the fictions of this art, or rather delusion, be swept away. What strange circumstance is this, that two children conceived at the same time, nay, at the same moment, under the same position of the stars, have different fates which bring them to different hours of birth, whilst two children born of two different mothers at the same moment of time, under one and the same position of the stars, cannot have different fates which shall conduct them by necessity to diverse manners of life and of death? Are they at conception as yet without destinies, because they can only have them if they be born? What therefore do they mean when they say that if the hour of the conception be found, many things can be predicted by these astrologers? From which also arose that story which is reiterated by some, that a certain sage chose an hour in which to lie with his wife, in order to secure his begetting an illustrious son. From this opinion also came that answer of Posidonius, the great astrologer and also philosopher, concerning those twins who were attacked with sickness at the same time, namely, that this had happened to them because they were conceived at the same time and born at the same time. 
for certainly he had a conception lest it should be said to him that they could not both be born at the same time, knowing that at any rate they must both have been conceived at the same time, wishing thus to show that he did not attribute the fact of their being similarly and simultaneously affected with sickness to the similarity of their bodily constitutions as its proximate cause, but that he held that even in respect of the similarity of their health they were bound together by a sidereal connection. If, therefore, the time of conception has so much to do with the similarity of destinies, these same destinies ought not to be changed by the circumstances of birth. Or, if the destinies of twins be said to be changed because they are born at different times, why should we not rather understand that they had been already changed in order that they might be born at different times? Does not, then, the will of men living in the world change the destinies of birth, when the order of birth can change the destinies they had at conception? CHAPTER six. But even in the very conception of twins, which certainly occurs at the same moment in the case of both, it often happens that the one is conceived a male, and the other a female. I know two of different sexes who are twins. Both of them are alive, and in the flower of their age, and though they resemble each other in body, as far as difference of sex will permit, still they are very different in the whole scope and purpose of their lives, consideration being had of those differences which necessarily exist between the lives of males and females, the one holding the office of a count, and being almost constantly away from home with the army and foreign service, the other never leaving her country's soil or her native district. Still more, and this is more incredible if the destinies of the stars are to be believed in, though it is not wonderful if we consider the wills of men and the free gifts of God. He is married, she is a sacred virgin. He has begotten a numerous offspring, she has never even married. But is not the virtue of the horoscope very great? I think I have said enough to show the absurdity of that. But, say those astrologers, whatever be the virtue of the horoscope in other respects, it is certainly of significance with respect to birth. But why not also with respect to conception, which takes place undoubtedly with one act of copulation? And indeed, so great is the force of nature, that after a woman has once conceived, she ceases to be liable to conception. Or were they, perhaps, changed at birth, either he into a male or she into a female, because of the difference in their horoscopes? But whilst it is not altogether absurd to say that certain sidereal influences have some power to cause differences in bodies alone, as, for instance, we see that the seasons of the year come round by the approaching and receding of the sun, and that certain kinds of things are increased in size or diminished by the waxings and wanings of the moon, such as sea urchins, oysters, and the wonderful tides of the ocean, it does not follow that the wills of men are to be made subject to the position of the stars. The astrologers, however, when they wish to bind our actions also to the constellations, only set us on investigating whether, even in these bodies, the changes may not be attributable to some other than a sidereal cause. For what is there which more intimately concerns a body than its sex? And yet under the same position of the stars twins of different sexes may be conceived. Wherefore, what greater absurdity can be affirmed or believed than that the position of the stars, which was the same for both of them at the time of conception, could not cause that the one child should not have been of a different sex from her brother, with whom she had a common constellation, whilst the position of the stars, which existed at the hour of their birth, could cause that she should be separated from him by the great distance between marriage and holy virginity? CHAPTER Seven. Now will any one bring forward this, that in choosing certain particular days for particular actions, men bring about certain new destinies for their actions? That man, for instance, according to this doctrine, was not born to have an illustrious son, but rather a contemptible one, and therefore, being a man of learning, he chose an hour in which to lie with his wife. 
He made, therefore, a destiny which he did not have before, and from that destiny of his own making something began to be fatal which was not contained in the destiny of his natal hour. Oh, singular stupidity! A day is chosen on which to marry, and for this reason I believe that unless a day be chosen, the marriage may fall on an unlucky day and turn out an unhappy one. What then becomes of what the stars have already decreed at the hour of birth? Can a man be said to change, by an act of choice, that which has already been determined for him, whilst that which he himself has determined in the choosing of a day cannot be changed by another power? Thus, if men alone, and not all things under heaven, are subjected to the influence of the stars, why do they choose some days as suitable for planting vines or trees, or for sowing grain, other days as suitable for taming beasts on, or for putting the males to the females, that the cows and mares may be impregnated, and for such like things? If it be said that certain chosen days have an influence on these things, because the constellations rule over all terrestrial bodies, animate and inanimate, according to differences in moments of time, let it be considered what innumerable multitudes of beings are born, or arise, or take their origin at the very same instant of time, which come to ends so different that they may persuade any little boy that these observations about days are ridiculous. For who is so mad as to dare affirm that all trees, all herbs, all beasts, serpents, birds, fishes, worms, have each separately their own moments of birth or commencement. Nevertheless, men are wont, in order to try the skill of the mathematicians, to bring before them the constellations of dumb animals, the constellations of whose birth they diligently observe at home with a view to this discovery, and they prefer those mathematicians to all others who say, from the inspection of the constellations, that they indicate the birth of a beast and not of a man. They also dare tell what kind of beast it is, whether it is a wool-bearing beast, or a beast suited for carrying burthens, or one fit for the plough, or for watching a house. For the astrologers are also tried with respect to the fates of dogs, and their answers concerning these are followed by shouts of admiration on the part of those who consult them. They so deceive men as to make them think that during the birth of a man the births of all other beings are suspended, so that not even a fly comes to life at the same time that he is being born under the same region of the heavens. And if this be admitted with respect to the fly, the reasoning cannot stop there, but must ascend from flies till it lead them up to camels and elephants. Nor are they willing to attend to this, that when a day has been chosen whereon to sow a field, so many grains fall into the ground simultaneously, germinate simultaneously, spring up, come to perfection, and ripen simultaneously, and yet of all the ears which are coeval, and so to speak, congerminal, some are destroyed by mildew, some are devoured by the birds, and some are pulled by men. How can they say that all these had their different constellations when they see them coming to so different ends? Will they confess that it is folly to choose days for such things, and to affirm that they do not come within the sphere of the celestial decree, whilst they subject men alone to the stars, on whom alone in the world God had bestowed free wills? All these things being considered, we have good reason to believe that when the astrologers give very many wonderful answers, it is to be attributed to the occult inspiration of spirits not of the best kind, whose care it is to insinuate into the minds of men, and to confirm in them those false and noxious opinions concerning the fatal influence of the stars, and not to their marking and inspecting of horoscopes, according to some kind of art which in reality has no existence. CHAPTER Eight. 
But as to those who call by the name of faith, not the disposition of the stars, as it may exist when any creature is conceived or born, or commences its existence, but the whole connection and train of causes which makes everything become what it does become, there is no need that I should labor and strive with them in a merely verbal controversy, since they attribute the so-called order and connection of causes to the will and power of God Most High, who is most rightly and most truly believed to know all things before they come to pass, and to leave nothing unordained, from whom are all powers, although the wills of all are not from him. Now that it is chiefly the will of God Most High, whose power extends itself irresistibly through all things which they call fate, is proved by the following verses, of which, if I mistake not, Aeneas Seneca is the author. Father Supreme, that ruler of the lofty heavens, lead me wherever it is thy pleasure. I will give a prompt obedience, making no delay. Lo, here I am. Promptly I come to do thy sovereign will. If thy command shall thwart my inclination, I will still follow thee groaning, and the work assigned, with all the suffering of a mind repugnant, will perform being evil, which, had I been good, I should have undertaken and performed, though hard, with virtuous cheerfulness. The fates do lead the man that follows willing, but the man that is unwilling, him they drag." Most evidently, in this last verse, he calls that fate, which he had before called the will of the Father Supreme, whom, he says, he is ready to obey that he may be led, being willing, not dragged, being unwilling, since the fates do lead the man that follows willing, but the man that is unwilling, him they drag. The following Homeric lines, which Cicero translates into Latin, also favor this opinion. Such are the minds of men, as is the light which Father Jove himself does poor, illustrious, over the fruitful earth. Not that Cicero wishes that a poetical sentiment should have any weight in a question like this, for when he says that the Stoics, when asserting the power of fate, were in the habit of using these verses from Homer, he is not treating concerning the opinion of that poet, but concerning that of those philosophers, since by these verses which they quote in connection with the controversy which they hold about fate, is most distinctly manifested what it is which they reckon fate, since they call by the name of Jupiter him whom they reckon the supreme God, from whom, they say, hangs the whole chain of fates. Chapter 9 The manner in which Cicero addresses himself to the task of refuting the Stoics shows that he did not think he could effect anything against them in argument unless he had first demolished divination. And this he attempts to accomplish by denying that there is any knowledge of future things, and maintains with all his might that there is no such knowledge either in God or man, and that there is no prediction of events. Thus he both denies the foreknowledge of God, and attempts by vain arguments, and by opposing to himself certain oracles very easy to be refuted, to overthrow all prophecy, even such as is clearer than the light, though even these oracles are not refuted by him. But in refuting these conjectures of the mathematicians, his argument is triumphant, because truly these are such as destroy and refute themselves. Nevertheless, they are far more tolerable who assert the fatal influence of the stars than they who deny the foreknowledge of future events. For to confess that God exists, and at the same time to deny that he has foreknowledge of future things, is the most manifest folly. This Cicero himself saw, and therefore attempted to assert the doctrine embodied in the words of Scripture, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. That, however, he did not do in his own person, for he saw how odious and offensive such an opinion would be. And therefore, in his book on the nature of the gods, he makes Cotta 
dispute concerning this against the Stoics, and preferred to give his own opinion in favour of Lucilius Balbus, to whom he assigned the defence of the Stoical position, rather than in favour of Cotta, who maintained that no divinity exists. However, in his book on divination, he in his own person most openly opposes the doctrine of the prescience of future things. But all this he seems to do in order that he may not grant the doctrine of fate, and by so doing destroy free will. For he thinks that the knowledge of future things being once conceded, fate follows as so necessary a consequence that it cannot be denied. But let these perplexing debatings and disputations of the philosophers go on as they may. We, in order that we may confess the Most High and True God himself, do confess his will, supreme power, and prescience. Neither let us be afraid, lest after all we do not do by will that which we do by will, because he whose foreknowledge is infallible foreknew that we would do it. It was this which Cicero was afraid of, and therefore opposed foreknowledge. The Stoics also maintained that all things do not come to pass by necessity, although they contended that all things happen according to destiny. What is it, then, that Cicero feared in the prescience of future things? Doubtless it was this, that if all future things have been foreknown, they will happen in the order in which they have been foreknown, and if they come to pass in this order, there is a certain order of things foreknown by God, and if a certain order of things, then a certain order of causes, for nothing can happen which is not preceded by some efficient cause. But if there is a certain order of causes, according to which everything happens which does happen, then by fate, says he, all things happen which do happen. But if this be so, then is there nothing in our own power, and there is no such thing as freedom of will. And if we grant that, says he, the whole economy of human life is subverted. In vain are laws enacted, in vain are reproaches, praises, chidings, exhortations had recourse to, and there is no justice whatever in the appointments of rewards for the good, and punishment for the wicked. And that consequences so disgraceful and absurd and pernicious to humanity may not follow, Cicero chooses to reject the foreknowledge of future things, and shuts up the religious mind to this alternative, to make choice between two things, either that something is in our own power, or that there is foreknowledge, both of which cannot be true, but if the one is affirmed, the other is thereby denied. He, therefore, like a truly great and wise man, and one who consulted very much and very skilfully for the good of humanity, of those two chose the freedom of the will, to confirm which he denied the foreknowledge of future things, and thus, wishing to make men free, he makes them sacrilegious. But the religious mind chooses both, confesses both, and maintains both by the faith of piety. But how so, says Cicero, for the knowledge of future things being granted, there follows a chain of consequences which ends in this, that there can be nothing depending on our own free wills. And further, if there is anything depending on our wills, we must go backwards by the same steps of reasoning, till we arrive at the conclusion that there is no foreknowledge of future things. For we go backwards through all the steps in the following order. If there is free will, all things do not happen according to fate. If all things do not happen according to fate, there is not a certain order of causes. And if there is not a certain order of causes, neither is there a certain order of things foreknown by God. For things cannot come to pass except they are preceded by efficient causes. But if there is no fixed and certain order of causes foreknown by God, all things cannot be said to happen according as he foreknew that they would happen. And further, if it is not true that all things happen just as they have been foreknown by him, there is not, says he, in God any foreknowledge of future events. Now against the sacrilegious and impious darings of reason we assert both that God knows all things before they come to pass, and that we do by our free will whatsoever we know and feel to be done by us only because we will it. But that all things come to pass by fate we do not say, 
nay we affirm that nothing comes to pass by fate for we demonstrate that the name of fate as it is wont to be used by those who speak of fate meaning thereby the position of the stars at the time of each one's conception or birth is an unmeaning word for astrology itself is a delusion but in order of causes in which the highest efficiency is attributed to the will of God, we neither deny nor do we designate it by the name of fate, unless perhaps we may understand fate to mean that which is spoken, deriving it from fari, to speak, for we cannot deny that it is written in the sacred scriptures, God hath spoken once, these two things have I heard, that power belongeth unto God. Also unto thee, O God, belongeth mercy, for thou wilt render unto every man according to his works." Now the expression, once hath he spoken, is to be understood as meaning immovably, that is, unchangeably hath he spoken, inasmuch as he knows unchangeably all things which shall be, and all things which he will do. We might then use the word fate in the sense it bears when derived from fari, to speak, had it not already come to be understood in another sense, into which I am unwilling that the hearts of men should unconsciously slide. But it does not follow that though there is for God a certain order of all causes, there must therefore be nothing depending on the free exercise of our own wills, for our wills themselves are included in that order of causes which is certain to God, and is embraced by his foreknowledge, for human wills are also causes of human actions. And he who foreknew all the causes of things would certainly, among those causes, have not been ignorant of our wills. For even that very concession which Cicero himself makes is enough to refute him in this argument. For what does it help him to say that nothing takes place without a cause, but that every cause is not fatal, there being a fortuitous cause, a natural cause, and a voluntary cause? It is sufficient that he confesses that whatever happens must be preceded by a cause. For we say that those causes which are called fortuitous are not a mere name for the absence of causes, but are only latent, and we attribute them either to the will of the true God, or to that of spirits of some kind or other. Other. And as to natural causes, we by no means separate them from the will of him who is the author and framer of all nature. But now as to voluntary causes. They are referable either to God, or to angels, or to men, or to animals of whatever description, if indeed those instinctive movements of animals devoid of reason, by which, in accordance with their own nature, they seek or shun various things, are to be called wills. And when I speak of the wills of angels, I mean either the wills of good angels, whom we call the angels of God, or of the wicked angels, whom we call the angels of the devil, or demons. Also by the wills of men I mean the wills either of the good or of the wicked. And from this we conclude that there are no efficient causes of all things which come to pass, unless voluntary causes, that is, such as belong to that nature which is the spirit of life. For the air or wind is called spirit, but inasmuch as it is a body, it is not the spirit of life. The spirit of life, therefore, which quickens all things, and is the creator of every body, and of every created spirit, is God himself, the uncreated spirit. In his supreme will resides the power which acts on the wills of all created spirits, helping the good, judging the evil, controlling all, granting power to some, not granting it to others. For as he is the creator of all natures, so also is he the bestower of all powers, not of all wills. For wicked wills are not from him, being contrary to nature, which is from him. As to bodies, they are more subject to wills. Some to our wills, by which I mean the wills of all living mortal creatures, but more to the wills of men than of beasts. But all of them are most of all subject to the will of God, to whom all wills also are subject, since they have no power except what he has bestowed upon them. The cause of things, therefore, which makes but is not made, is God. But all other causes both make and are made. Such are all created spirits, and especially the rational. 
Material causes, therefore, which may rather be said to be made than to make, are not to be reckoned among efficient causes, because they can only do what the wills of spirits do by them. How then does an order of causes which is certain to the foreknowledge of God necessitate that there should be nothing which is dependent on our wills, when our wills themselves have a very important place in the order of causes? Cicero, then, contends with those who call this order of causes fatal, or rather designate this order itself by the name of fate, to which we have an abhorrence, especially on account of the word, which men have become accustomed to understand as meaning what is not true. But whereas he denies that the order of all causes is most certain, and perfectly clear to the prescience of God, we detest his opinion more than the Stoics do. For he either denies that God exists, which indeed in an assumed personage he has laboured to do in his book De Natura Deorum, or if he confesses that he exists, but denies that he is prescient of future things, what is that but just the fool saying in his heart there is no God? For one who is not prescient of all future things is not God. Wherefore our wills also have just so much power as God willed and foreknew that they should have, and therefore whatever power they have, they have it within most certain limits, and whatever they are to do, they are most assuredly to do, for he whose foreknowledge is infallible foreknew that they would have the power to do it, and would do it. Wherefore, if I should choose to apply the name of fate to anything at all, I should rather say that fate belongs to the weaker of two parties, will to the stronger, who has the other in his power, and that the freedom of our will is excluded by that order of causes which by an unusual application of the word peculiar to themselves the stoics call fate chapter ten wherefore neither is that necessity to be feared for dread of which the stoics laboured to make such distinctions among the causes of things as should enable them to rescue certain things from the dominion of necessity and to subject others to it among those things which they wished not to be subject to necessity, they placed our wills, knowing that they would not be free if subjected to necessity. For if that is to be called our necessity, which is not in our power, but even though we be unwilling effects what it can effect, as, for instance, the necessity of death, it is manifest that our wills by which we live uprightly or wickedly are not under such a necessity, for we do many things which, if we were not willing, we should certainly not do. This is primarily true of the act of willing itself. For if we will, it is, if we will not, it is not. For we should not will if we were unwilling. But if we define necessity to be that according to which we say that it is necessary that anything be of such or such a nature, or be done in such and such a manner, I know not why we should have any dread of that necessity taking away the freedom of our will. For we do not put the life of God or the foreknowledge of God under necessity, if we should say that it is necessary that God should live for ever and foreknow all things, as neither is his power diminished when we say that he cannot die or fall into error, for this is in such a way impossible to him, that if it were possible for him, he would be of less power. But assuredly he is rightly called omnipotent, though he can neither die nor fall into error. For he is called omnipotent on account of his doing what he wills, not on account of his suffering what he wills not. For if that should befall him, he would by no means be omnipotent. Wherefore he cannot do some things for the very reason that he is omnipotent. So also when we say that it is necessary that when we will, we will by free choice, in so saying we both affirm what is true beyond doubt, and do not still subject our wills thereby to a necessity which destroys liberty. Our wills, therefore, exist as wills, and do themselves whatever we do by willing, and which would not be done if we were unwilling. But when any one suffers anything, being unwilling, by the will of another, even in that case will retains its essential validity. We do not mean the will of the party who inflicts the suffering, for we resolve it into the power of God. 
for if a will should simply exist but not be able to do what it wills it would be overborne by a more powerful will nor would this be the case unless there had existed will and that not the will of the other party but the will of him who willed but was not able to accomplish what he willed therefore whatsoever a man suffers contrary to his own will he ought not to attribute to the will of men or of angels or of any created spirit but rather to his will who gives power to wills it is not the case therefore that because god foreknew what would be in the power of our wills there is for that reason nothing in the power of our wills for he who foreknew this did not foreknow nothing moreover if he who foreknew what would be in the power of our wills did not foreknow nothing but something assuredly even though he did foreknow there is something in the power of our wills therefore we are by no means compelled either retaining the prescience of god to take away the freedom of the will or retaining the freedom of the will to deny he is prescient of future things which is impious but we embrace both we faithfully and sincerely confess both the former that we may believe well the latter that we may live well for he lives ill who does not believe well concerning god wherefore be it far from us in order to maintain our freedom to deny the prescience of him by whose help we are or shall be free consequently it is not in vain that laws are enacted and that reproaches exhortations praises and vituperations are had recourse to for these also he foreknew and they are of great avail even as great as he foreknew that they would be of prayers also are of avail to procure those things which he foreknew that he would grant to those who offered them and with justice have rewards been appointed for good deeds and punishment for sins for a man does not therefore sin because god foreknew that he would sin nay it cannot be doubted that it is the man himself who sins when he does sin because he whose foreknowledge is infallible foreknew not that fate or fortune or something else would sin but that the man himself would sin who if he wills not sins not but if he shall not will to sin even this did god foreknow chapter eleven therefore god supreme and true with his word and his holy spirit which three are one one god omnipotent creator and maker of every soul and of every body by whose gift all are happy who are happy through verity and not through vanity who made man a rational animal consisting of soul and body who when he sinned neither permitted him to go unpunished nor left him without mercy who has given to the good and to the evil, being in common with stones, vegetable life in common with trees, sensuous life in common with brutes, intellectual life in common with angels alone, from whom is every mode, every species, every order, from whom are measure, number, weight, from whom is everything which has an existence in nature, of whatever kind it be, and of whatever value, from whom are the seeds of forms, and the forms of seeds, and the motion of seeds, and of forms, who gave also to flesh its origin, beauty, health, reproductive fecundity, disposition of members, and the salutary concord of its parts, who also to the irrational soul has given memory, sense, appetite, but to the rational soul, in addition to these, has given intelligence and will, who has not left, not to speak of heaven and earth, angels and men, but not even the entrails of the smallest and most contemptible animal, or the feather of a bird, or the little flower of a plant, or the leaf of a tree, without an harmony, and, as it were, a mutual peace among all its parts. That God can never be believed to have left the kingdoms of men, their dominations and servitudes, outside of the laws of his providence. CHAPTER Twelve wherefore let us go on to consider what virtues of the romans they were which the true god in whose power are also the kingdoms of the earth condescended to help in order to raise the empire and also for what reason he did so 
and in order to discuss this question on clearer ground we have written the former books to show that the power of those gods who they thought were to be worshipped with such trifling and silly rites had nothing to do in this matter and also what we have already accomplished in the present volume to refute the doctrine of fate lest any one who might have been already persuaded that the roman empire was not extended and preserved by the worship of these gods might still be attributing its extension and preservation to some kind of fate rather than to the most powerful will of god most high the ancient and primitive romans therefore though their history shows as that, like all the other nations, with the sole exception of the Hebrews, they worshipped false gods, and sacrificed victims not to God but to demons, have nevertheless this commendation bestowed on them by their historian, that they were greedy of praise, prodigal of wealth, desirous of great glory, and content with a moderate fortune. Glory they most ardently loved, for it they wished to live, for it they did not hesitate to die. Every other desire was repressed by the strength of their passion for that one thing. At length their country itself, because it seemed inglorious to serve, but glorious to rule and to command, they first earnestly desired to be free, and then to be mistress. Hence it was that not enduring the domination of kings, they put the government into the hands of two chiefs, holding office for a year, who were called consuls, not kings or lords. But royal pomp seemed inconsistent with the administration of a ruler, regentis, or the benevolence of one who consults, that is, for the public good, consulentis, but rather with the haughtiness of a lord, dominantis. King Tarquin, therefore, having been banished, and the consular government having been instituted, it followed, as the same author already alluded to says in his praises of the Romans, that the state grew with amazing rapidity after it obtained liberty, so great a desire of glory had taken possession of it. That eagerness for praise and desire of glory, then, was that which accomplished those many wonderful things, laudable, doubtless, and glorious according to human judgment. The same Sallust praises the great men of his own time, Marcus Cato and Caius Caesar, saying that for a long time the Republic had no one great in virtue, but that within his memory there had been these two men of eminent virtue in very different pursuits. Now among the praises which he pronounces on Caesar he put this, that he wished for a great empire, an army, and a new war, that he might have a sphere where his genius and virtue might shine forth. Thus it was ever the prayer of men of heroic character that Bologna would excite miserable nations to war, and lash them into agitation with her bloody scourge, so that there might be occasion for the display of their valor. This, forsooth, is what that desire of praise and thirst for glory did. Wherefore, by the love of liberty in the first place, afterwards also by that of domination, and through the desire of praise and glory, they achieved many great things, and their most eminent poet testifies to their having been prompted by all these motives. Porcena there, with pride elate, bids Rome to Tarquin ope her gate. With arms he hems the city in, Aeneas's sons stand firm to win. At that time it was their greatest ambition either to die bravely or to live free. But when liberty was obtained, so great a desire of glory took possession of them, that liberty alone was not enough unless domination also should be sought, their great ambition being that which the same poet puts into the mouth of Jupiter. Nay, Juno's self, whose wild alarms set ocean, earth, and heaven in arms, shall change for smiles her moody frown, and vie with me in zeal to crown Rome's sons, the nation of the gown. So stands my will. There comes a day, while Rome's great ages hold their way, when old Asaricus's sons shall quit them on the Myrmidons, or Thea and Mycenae reign, and humble Argos to their chain. 
which things indeed Virgil makes Jupiter predict his future, whilst in reality he was only himself passing in review in his own mind things which were already done, and which were beheld by him as present realities. But I have mentioned them with the intention of showing that next to liberty the Romans so highly esteemed domination that it received a place among those things on which they bestowed the greatest praise. Hence also it is that that poet, preferring to the arts of the other nations those arts which peculiarly belong to the Romans, namely the arts of ruling and commanding, and of subjugating and vanquishing nations, says, Others belike with happier grace from bronze or stone shall call the face, plead doubtful causes, map the skies, and tell when planets set or rise. But Roman thou, do thou control the nations far and wide. Be this thy genius, to impose the rule of peace on vanquished foes, show pity to the humble soul, and crush the sons of pride. These arts they exercised with the more skill the less they gave themselves up to pleasures, and to enervation of body and mind in coveting and amassing riches, and through these corrupting morals, by extorting them from the miserable citizens, and lavishing them on base stage-players. Hence these men of base character, who abounded when Sallust wrote and Virgil sang these things, did not seek after honours and glory by these arts, but by treachery and deceit. Wherefore the same says, But at first it was rather ambition than avarice that stirred the minds of men, which vice, however, is nearer to virtue. For glory, honour, and power are desired alike by the good man and by the ignoble, but the former, he says, strives onward to them by the true way, whilst the other, knowing nothing of the good arts, seeks them by fraud and deceit. And what is meant by seeking the attainment of glory, honour, and power by good arts, is to seek them by virtue, and not by deceitful intrigue. For the good and the ignoble man alike desire these things, but the good man strives to overtake them by the true way. The way is virtue, along which he presses as to the goal of possession, namely, to glory, honour, and power. Now that this was a sentiment ingrained in the Roman mind is indicated even by the temples of their gods, for they built in very close proximity the temples of virtue and honour, worshipping as gods the gifts of God. Hence we can understand what they who were good thought to be the end of virtue, and to what they ultimately referred it, namely to honour. For as to the bad they had no virtue, though they desired honour, and strove to possess it by fraud and deceit. Praise of a higher kind is bestowed upon Cato, for he says of him, The less he sought glory, the more it followed him. We say praise of a higher kind, for the glory with the desire of which the Romans burned is the judgment of men thinking well of men. And therefore virtue is better which is content with no human judgment, save that of one's own conscience. Whence the apostle says, For this is our glory, the testimony of our conscience. And in another place he says, But let every one prove his own work, and then he shall have glory in himself, and not in another. That glory, honour, and power, therefore, which they desired for themselves, and to which the good sought to attain by good arts, should not be sought after by virtue, but virtue by them. For there is no true virtue except that which is directed towards that end in which is the highest and ultimate good of man. Wherefore even the honours which Cato sought, he ought not to have sought, but the state ought to have conferred them on him unsolicited on account of his virtues. But of the two great Romans of that time Cato was he whose virtue was by far the nearest to the true idea of virtue. Wherefore let us refer to the opinion of Cato himself to discover what was the judgment he had formed concerning the condition of the state both then and in former times. I do not think, he says, that it was by arms that our ancestors made the republic great from being small. Had that been the case, the republic of our day would have been by far more flourishing than that of their times. 
for the number of our allies and citizens is far greater, and besides we possess a far greater abundance of armor and of horses than they did. But it was other things than these that made them great, and we have none of them. Industry at home, just government without, a mind free in deliberation, addicted neither to crime nor to lust. Instead of these we have luxury and avarice, poverty in the state, opulence among its citizens, we laud riches, we follow laziness, there is no difference made between the good and the bad, all the rewards of virtue are got possession of by intrigue. And no wonder, when every individual consults only for his own good, when ye are the slaves of pleasure at home, and in public affairs, of money and favour, no wonder that an onslaught is made upon the unprotected republic." He who hears these words of Cato or of Sallust probably thinks that such praise bestowed on the ancient Romans was applicable to all of them, or at least to very many of them. It is not so. Otherwise the things which Cato himself writes, and which I have quoted in the second book of this work, would not be true. In that passage he says, that even from the very beginning of the state wrongs were committed by the more powerful, which led to the separation of the people from the fathers, besides which there were other internal dissensions, and the only time in which there existed a just and moderate administration was after the banishment of the kings, and that no longer than whilst they had caused to be afraid of Tarquin, and were carrying on the grievous war which had been undertaken on his account against Etruria, but afterwards the fathers oppressed the people as slaves, flogged them as the kings had done, drove them from their land, and to the exclusion of all others held the government in their own hands alone. And to these discords, whilst the fathers were wishing to rule, and the people were unwilling to serve, the second Punic War put an end. For again great fear began to press upon their disquieted minds, holding them back from those distractions by another and greater anxiety, and bringing them back to civil concord. But the great things which were then achieved were accomplished through the administration of a few men, who were good in their own way and by the wisdom and forethought of these few good men which first enabled the republic to endure these evils and mitigated them, it waxed greater and greater. And this the same historian affirms when he says that reading and hearing of the many illustrious achievements of the Roman people in peace and in war, by land and by sea, he wished to understand what it was by which these great things were specially sustained. For he knew that very often the Romans had with a small company contended with great legions of the enemy, and he knew also that with small resources they had carried on wars with opulent kings. And he says that after having given the matter much consideration, it seemed evident to him that the preeminent virtue of a few citizens had achieved the whole, and that that explained how poverty overcame wealth and small numbers great multitudes. But, he adds, after that the state had been corrupted by luxury and indolence, again the republic, by its own greatness, was able to bear the vices of its magistrates and generals. Wherefore, even the praises of Cato are only applicable to a few, for only a few were possessed of that virtue which leads men to pursue after glory, honor, and power by the true way, that is, by virtue itself. This industry at home of which Cato speaks was the consequence of a desire to enrich the public treasury, even though the result should be poverty at home. And therefore, when he speaks of the evil arising out of the corruption of morals, he reverses the expression and says, Poverty in the state, riches at home. End of Book 5 Preface in Chapters 1-12 through 12. Recording by Darren L. Slider Fort Worth, Texas www.logoslibrary.org